I think that the crux of this problem is not the desire to make communities better by providing, you know, a better landscape and green infrastructure and parks and open space. It really boils down to who has access to housing and what is housing. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. Today with Dr. Jennifer Walsh, Dean Emerita, and Professor of City and Regional Planning in the College of Environmental Design at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, Jennifer joins us today to discuss uh, her work on housing accessibility and public policy in Southern California. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you, Charles. It's delightful to be here with you. It's lovely to see you. For much of your career, uh, for now decades, your both scholarly and activist work has focused on uh, both describing the conditions for housing accessibility and equity in Southern California. And while for the past decade or more, you've been based at the University of California at Berkeley, I know that you continue to keep an eye on things in Southern California. And so I want to begin by asking you a question about the the contemporary situation uh, to the extent you've kept an eye on things in Southern California uh, these days. How would you describe the relative state of access to housing and equity with respect to housing the population in Southern California relative to when you began your work on those subjects? I think it's actually gotten worse in terms of in terms of housing affordability and and the extent of precarity. I think that like the rest of California, there's been an incredible upsurge in housing values. And there have also been major economic events that put people out of their houses or apartments. Obviously, the Great Recession did that. The foreclosure crisis affected many, many people in Southern California who found themselves suddenly without a home and having to go into the rental market with the kind of rolling impacts that that has on on prices in the rental market. And of course, a lot of people lost jobs and therefore had trouble paying rent. Now we're in a situation with COVID-19 where we've had rent moratoria, but ending soon with no support coming, uh, at least that we know of yet, to uh, protect people, and a huge job loss, a huge number of job losses. And, And so that also means people are having trouble paying their mortgage, and we can expect at least some share of that affected population to um, have to, again, go out of the the ownership sector into the rental sector. And people who have lost jobs that are, you know, uh, low income and find themselves like, you know, you've seen the pictures of the enormous food lines for food pantry lines. You know, those folks, it will take a while for them to run through their resources and to you know, stay with relatives and friends, but some share of those people will wind up homeless. And I think it's a, it's, you know, we're waiting for the wave to come with very little relief in sight. So I, I think it's a situation that has not ameliorated over time. And I think one of the, one of the big challenges, and I think, uh, you know, in the built environment area, we're always thinking about how do we produce affordable housing? And we think about housing as the solution, which at some level, of course it is. But it's also really important in my view to understand that most affordable housing is what's called naturally occurring affordable housing. It's not the increment that we're able to produce 
on an annual basis of new affordable projects. And so what's happening to that naturally occurring affordable housing? It's being occupied by people who are not poor. It's being upgraded. Some of it is being demolished for higher value uses um, in housing and, or other. And so uh, the loss of that housing is super important. The other thing to think about, and I, you know, I always think about this because I, you know, I work, I've done so much work on homelessness. Housing, providing more housing deals with the people who, are, who have fallen out of housing. But how do you prevent people from falling out of housing? So it's a problem with wages. It's, you know, the enormous wage and, you know, income inequality in the country. And the fact that people are spending way, way too much a share of their income on housing. And so, you know, we have to think about how do we turn the faucet off, this faucet of homeless people going from housed to unhoused to the street, and not simply think about what do we do with them when, once they're there. And I think that's a, it's an enormous problem multifaceted problem, but something that, that we need to be dealing uh, with the causes, not just the symptoms. So by naturally occurring affordable housing, this would be the byproduct of market economies. So these are housing units that essentially are you know, degraded over time or as neighborhoods change, as other parts of the city gentrify. You're suggesting that the vast majority of housing availability for those that are in forms of economic insecurity or precarity about their housing status, that that increment of naturally occurring housing is shrinking. That's in fact a much larger increment than the than the building of new affordable housing. Do I do I understand that correctly? I think that's right. And so, you know, it gets down to the question of you know how how do we keep housing affordable if it's a commodity? and it's commoditized and it is thoroughly, it's not only commoditized, it is hugely subsidized uh, by the government in terms of owner, owner occupied housing. We have this um, approach to housing as a commodity, as a wealth generator, as a subsidized product, basically, uh, that's very deeply ingrained in how everybody operates in the financial markets and everyday life. But I think it, you know, the, the crisis of homelessness in California and elsewhere in the country really makes us call into question whether all of this that we kind of take for granted and is deeply ingrained is actually sustainable. It's certainly not equitable. I mean, in your work and in this conversation, you surfaced the notion that it hadn't always been this way, right? So you've been working on questions of you know uh, housing access and homelessness in Southern California since the 1980s and 90s. The year 1993 publication of Malign Neglect is, in addition to having one of the best book titles I've seen in, in a very long time, describes that condition in great detail. So it's something you've been following for many, many decades. So in that regard, the notion that the policy choices and uh, governance decisions that have been made over the course of the 80s and the 90s continue to the commodification of housing, uh, the kind of increasingly neoliberal economy, the notion of the withdrawal of the aspiration to housing publics. That's certainly a part of that story. And then as you describe now, we're now, I think, in our third economic crisis in the past two decades. If you begin with 9-11, if you include the 0809 housing crisis, and now the pandemic around COVID, and you link, obviously, uh, those topics both to the structural conditions of capitalism, but equally to choices that we've made at the level of policy and, and governments, uh, governance more broadly. 
In the conversations we've been having with folks in California, they lead us to believe that the demand side, the faucet you're describing, right now might be something like 60 or 65,000 units of, of affordable housing that's need, that are needed. And so in that regard, you know, we've talked with many people who are working quite uh, diligently. We're, we're, our sense is that both the design you know, community, you know, urban designers, architects, planners, but equally, um, the not-for-profit sectors, the NGOs, the community development groups, there are many, many success stories, many experiments taking place in the context of Southern California. But at the same moment, collectively, there's a sense of just the enormous scale of the challenge. And in some ways, the asymmetry of using tools like architecture and urban design to address these larger societal challenges. Are you optimistic where we are today about our ability as a society to address that volume, that scale of homelessness? I'm not that optimistic. I think that there are some opportunities if localities are provided with resources. For example, it turns out it's about a third as expensive to retrofit a hotel room in one of the many empty hotels that exist now. Uh, in order to be, you know, like SRO type housing for formerly homeless people, as it is to build a new unit. And so I think that there are opportunities. The le- and during the Great Recession, there was a lot of foreclosed housing, but s- localities had no ability to buy it and basically put it into the affordable stock. And what happened was big corporations bought it and now, you know, manage that stock in a very predatory, often very predatory fashion. So I do think if there are resources, there are some kind of strange opportunities. But I also think that the scale of the gap, the gap between what we have and can produce and what's needed is very large. And I think that part of what has to happen is that we need to rethink the social safety net. It is so frayed, it is so weak, and so um, penurious in its orientation. I'll give you one example from Alameda County, which is you know where Oakland and Berkeley are located. The state's counties have a program for single indigent people. They're called general relief or general assistance. Alameda County that pays, uh, I think it's three hundred. 20 something dollars a month, but you're only eligible for it for three months a year. And it's considered a loan. You may be, if you're in the right age group, you may get access to Medicaid, but maybe not. You may be able to get a couple hundred dollars of food stamps, but, but that's it. And so with that kind of level of support for people, you know, the, you can't build your way out of that, particularly when we're in job markets where even if you can work or do work, you know, you're not able to afford housing. And I think one of the things that's changed between when I started looking at homelessness and now is so many more people are working and homeless. So I think that, that we need to address the welfare state, which is in shambles at the moment. Is there a way in which uh, at the municipal or the state level you see uh, reforms that might be possible at the level of public policy? Well, I think that the current, the most recent election, there were things on the ballot that are directly related to what we're talking about. As I'm sure you know, Proposition 13 in 1978 
ushered in an era of, you know, anti-tax movements across the country. And there, people understand in California that, that the chickens have come home to roost with Proposition 13. That is, it is a major factor in why many aspects of uh, local governance and municipal finance are really dysfunctional. And many things were underfunded. But for the first time ever on the ballot was proposition to create a split role system. And you may know that Proposition 13 uh, covered not only residential dwellings, but also commercial property. And so it was a huge, huge windfall for non-residential property owners. And this was an effort X number of years later to create a split role system whereby over time and for larger owners, they would actually go, you know, drift up to market rate taxes. It went down. It was not approved. So there's still the very strong reluctance, powerful reluctance. And, and of course, tons of money was spent on the campaign, as you can imagine. There's powerful reluctance to address some of these inequities and basic, you know, really problems in tax law and structure that limit the capacity of the state and localities to provide the services that they should be providing. You know, and I, when I think about it from a very personal perspective, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. There were lots of parks. Parks had, you know, kind of park playrooms. There was staff at parks. There was equipment you could loan out, you could borrow. Lots of different activities scheduled. All of that is essentially gone. And so, you know, and if you look at almost every sector of urban life, you see that kind of diminution of public provision and maintenance and care for the urban environment and landscape. It's very troubling, right? So I, I do think that th there are structural problems that, that need to be addressed that shouldn't be addressed by referenda, but should be actually what the state legislators work on. But the other thing that you mentioned is also part of the issue, and that is that there is a very deep-seated allergy to regionalism. And, you know, as planners, we know that problems that cities face do not respect municipal boundaries. And we need regional solutions for a lot of things, including things like fair share affordable housing production, which we technically have in California, but it doesn't work very well at all. But the, the regional agencies that we do have, uh, councils of government, which are largely toothless, or they're what Bill Fulton call, used to call stealth regional agencies, the Air Quality Management District and the Water Board, you know, that, ha that actually have an influence on what happens in cities, but not because they're the regional planning entity. So that allergy to what you called concentrated authority and the amazing proliferation of special districts of all variety make the place very difficult to govern. In a, and, and not just govern, but on an everyday basis, but problem solve when there are big problems to be solved. I want to return to this notion that you, that you mentioned earlier, Jennifer, about the windows of opportunity, you know, in these economic crises around housing costs, uh, in which municipalities have not, by and large, participated, right? There, there have been these windows around each of these crises in which, as uh, real estate prices uh, stop their precipitous rise, 
municipalities failed uh, to step in to acquire property on their own. I've been struck in our conversations about how many housing advocacy groups, uh, both local and community development groups, are active in the city of Los Angeles, doing quite good work, it seems. Fairly you know, diverse array of agendas and interests, but they, they seem to be, as a cohort, mature. They're engaging architects and urban designers at a very high level. They're producing interesting work. But I'm struck by your comment that it hadn't occurred to us in these conversations yet, that in fact, what is the role of the municipality in Southern California? How is it that cities are not stepping in to acquire housing on their own right? That seems to be something that's so, it's so fallen out of the notion of the political economy in the United States in the past decades. Can you see a scenario or are there examples where municipalities might be able to enter into the ownership of, of housing on their own terms? Well, I think that, you know, the experience with housing authorities, which own and manage public housing, you know, has made cities uh, leery of of taking on ownership and management responsibility for large increments of of additional housing. I think that it could be possible to do that if they had the resources to acquire the property and had also the resources to manage the property. But the need, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the, these kind of stories before. You know, every time L.A. opens up the Section 8 waitlist line, it closes in a few hours because it's just like it'll be 10 years before anybody is contacted anyway. So they just close it. So the, the demand is so large. And I think that the resources are so finite. There's a greater willingness to try to use other mechanisms like nonprofits housing developers to try to either convert existing projects or build new projects. The other thing that happened in California is that Jerry Brown got rid of all the redevelopment agencies. And so that was, uh, uh, as governor, when he was governor the second time, there are many bad things to say about redevelopment agencies, especially if you go back over, back in time. But they did have a finance mechanism, you know, tax increment financing. to, And increasingly, they had been channeling that in the big cities to affordable housing. And then that got stopped. So again, not helpful in terms of providing the kinds of resources that cities could use to actually support the development of rehabilitation of affordable housing. To what extent do you find the, the not in my backyard business uh, uh, apt in the, in the context of Los Angeles? Is that one of the primary issues? It's a huge problem. I would say that if you look at the recent experience with LA, the city passed a huge bond measure for homeless housing. The county passed another huge bond measure for homeless services. And the idea was get them together and and start to build projects. And the very first one out of the block, the community said, no, we don't want it. And they just said, "Uh uh-uh, ain't happening here. So, So NIMBY continues to be a really big problem. I think that design actually can play a really important role in intervening in that conversation because if people change their image of what a quote-unquote project looks like and then it may be able to unwind some of the opposition and i also think it takes really long-term dedicated work in the community to bring communities around and you know you see organizations that have done that in santa monica for example ocean park community services, you know, they face a lot of opposition when they wanted to build a big, uh, their big new kind of flagship project. 
Um, this is about maybe 15, 17 years ago. And they just stayed at it. They had lots of community meetings. They had, you know, worked with architects and so on. And actually, everybody who was against it decided, oh, well, you know, it's actually just fine. So, you know, you need to celebrate those success stories and also codify how, it, how they were able to be accomplished. But I think, again, I think designers have a lot of uh, influence here in terms of making these projects really community assets rather than something to be resisted. Have you seen examples, or maybe you could speak to this notion of those examples, experiments pushing upstream to affect uh, policies change, either at the municipal or at the state level? Are you optimistic that some of these experiments can be generalized from? Well, I think that there's been a huge push to get to alter parking requirements. And, you know, every city is going to be different, but there has been quite a bit of success at that in radically reducing parking requirements. And it absolutely has to happen. You know, progress is being made there and more is yet to come, clearly. But uh, as far as housing prices, it makes a huge difference. The other thing that, may ha- that is starting to happen is separating the price you pay for your unit and the price you pay for your parking. <laughs> and so when people are faced with this huge parking bill, they think, oh, maybe I don't really want to do that. So, you know, those kinds of things are interesting strategies to actually make the price of parking obvious and then pe- people can opt out. The other thing I would say that we haven't really talked about is in terms of housing innovation is offsite production. The architecture community has a very long and not very happy history with trying to do manufactured housing, right? Assembly line housing. And yet in California, groups like Factory OS and Vallejo and others have a ton of orders. They're producing at a pretty large scale. The units in in architectural terms could, you know, are kind of basic. And there's lots of room for innovation there, both in terms of design and sustainability. But the model that these groups are using is quite interesting because they're clearly, they save a lot of money in terms of the final cost of the of projects, but they're also defined the labor force. Uh, they're actually using union labor. You know, the, the people who work in those factories have union manufacturing jobs, not trades, but they have then the ability to move into a trade, a building trade, where they're going to make more money. So it's a really great entry level into the building trades via this manufactured housing. And of course, you know, there's all the advantages that we all know about manufactured housing. You know, it's more consistent, the quality can be higher, et cetera. In my understanding, the problem has always been you could never get enough orders to keep a big factory running, but now there is. And I think that I'm hoping that, that you know, we're bending the cost curve a bit, providing lots of opportunities for quick infill provision of housing, and maybe we'll nudge the building sector to you know, modernize what is really in many ways an antiquated model. We're, we're in a moment just now where there's a great deal of interest in the Green, Green New Deal and the prospects for both stimulus, but also infrastructural renewal and reinvestment in this country. Are there reasons why, in your estimation, housing and especially affordable housing or housing of the homeless rarely seems to connect to conversations of economic stimulus and infrastructure and kinds of the role of the public sector in both stimulating the economy, but also rebuilding the public realm? I think that notion of 
shovel-ready and the urgency to disseminate or distribute the money in the Great Recession led to, you know, replicating a lot of practices and, and models that really were not forward-thinking. And so you get roads and you get bridges and you get, you know, you get the standard stuff, which we're trying actually to rethink and redesign and certainly rethink in terms of carbon intensity and materiality and so on. And so I get a little worried when I hear shovel, shovel ready, because I think that if we were thoughtful about it, we would think about the infrastructure renewal that's necessary, which is huge. Uh, you know, it's amazing. It's just, you know, it's so, been so underfunded, but also thinking about how do we think about not brown infrastructure, but green and blue infrastructure. How do we think about that infrastructure as a way to make cities more livable, healthier, better places to be? Because, you know, that kind of infrastructure really can do that. And, and so I think that we have a huge opportunity if we actually are able to pass a new, new Green Deal to be thinking about, clearly about job opportunity and training and social mobility, also sustainability and resilience, obviously resilience and adaptation, but also the fundamental livability and affordability of communities. I mean, if you, if you think seriously about resilience as not only physical, but social, you know, communities with weak social capital and ties, institutional infrastructure are the least resilient. They are the most vulnerable to any kind of extreme event or other climate-related episode. And so strengthening those communities means that people have resources that they don't spend 80% of their money on housing or 50% of their money on housing, that they have the wherewithal to have health insurance, that it's affordable. All of those things that we think about are as separate from something like a new green deal, they're not. And I think one of the interesting things about Biden's idea about the green new deal, he's not calling it, you know, the green new deal, but He's seeing it as an economic engine, which is great, but it also can be an engine to, in many ways, rethink the urban fabric and how it works. It's a really crucial distinction that if we imagine economic stimulus, uh, economic recovery as in part fueled by spending on the, on the public sector side, the federal side, uh, injecting you know, money in with a sense of urgency and speed, traditionally that has led to, as you've said, simply reproducing the known, right? And that would tend to then exacerbate the problems we have with respect to climate, carbon, greenhouse gases, uh, and the like. And so in that regard, the, the notion of stimulus and federal incentives and funding moving not toward the usual pipelines, but rather to kind of structural change of energy systems, uh, renewing the energy grid, the notion of shifting away from carbon-based energy production and distribution toward other more decentralized and more renewable energy sources strikes us as quite timely. And in that regard, Southern California has some enormous advantages in spite of the challenges we've been discussing. No, I mean, it, it is a context in which uh, quite a lot of renewable energy is available. And in fact, compared to other parts of the country, has quite a history in that regard at, at the forefront. I wonder if you want to say something about the relative availability of solar energy or the state of you know, renewable energy in, in California or Southern California specifically. Well, I think that there, there have been really significant strides made. Um, in terms of shifting to renewables, there's a lot of work to do. And one thing that I think is less prominent than it could be is 
you know, that shifting to renewables is, a, is about supply, right? So what about demand? And so when we think about demand and shifting demand, we immediately go to the built environment, right? Transportation, but also the built structure of the uh, and buildings and cities, which need to be retrofitted. And I think that there's some very interesting, uh, you know, models that are that are getting tested. Some of them uh, have been, you know, tested in Europe over the, over the last decade or so, and are quite successful. But you know, thinking about integrated projects, integrated blocks in terms of water and energy, district energy uh, strategies, and the like. So I think that, you know, I think we have an opportunity here to, to really, you know, make a dent on d- the demand side, which we also really need to do. Because renewable energy is great, but you're still using lots of material. There's still lots of toxics in, in the, in, involved in some of these technologies. And it's going to be very important because most of our housing stock is used to, and building stock is to think about how to, how to rethink it, how to retrofit it, how to reduce the demand coming from that built stock. So you mentioned uh, mobility. On the one hand, you know, we can't have a conversation about Los Angeles without talking about automobility. At the same moment, of course, Los Angeles has been an extraordinary success story with respect to its shift toward public transit, with respect to the building of a highway subway system to supplant the highway system. As you think about mobility, uh, both systems, but also its, its energy consumption, where do you see Southern California going? Obviously, there are great claims about autonomous vehicles. And on the one hand, more, more and more people working from home or remotely. I'm told the the air is clear in Southern California and the, the highways, the freeways are more, more or less passable in a way that they're not always. But of course, as you suggest, as the economy recovers, those will both reverse very, very quickly to previous situations. So what I see is on the one hand, um, city of Los Angeles, cool streets initiative, the notion of distributed shade, the idea of you know sheltering people at bus stops, Christopher Hawthorne's program of the new streetlight competition. I see a kind of civic ethos with respect to the street and questions of mobility. But at the same moment, I wonder if we could imagine, you know, Angelinos getting out of their car. I think that they'll get, they can get out of their cars a lot more than they have in the past. I, I think that the move that was started, you know, about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago with the establishment of the first urban design office in the city of Los Angeles, the focus on the street and improving streets and what Christopher Hawthorne is doing now, extremely important and hopefully makes neighborhoods and, and commercial districts much more walkable and hopefully gets people out of their cars. And, you know, people are using, when they're available, they use scooters and there's more biking. And so I think that it's possible. I think that the distribution of jobs and housing in the region makes, to the extent people are still going to be commuting, it makes it some of the the long distance distance infrastructure pretty important and not, you know, can't just get rid of it. But I think that on the transit side, there's a lot more to be done. In at the turn of the century, or say 1910, turn of the 19th century, you know, to 1910, 1920, Los Angeles had the biggest transit system in the country, right? 1,152 miles, I believe the number is. Streetcars and trolleys? Streetcars, trolleys, some subways. And you could go from Riverside to Santa Monica. You know, it's just unbelievable. Now, there were a whole bunch of reasons why it fell apart. And we don't have to talk about those now. But 
if you look at Metro over 20 years, right, and more in the, in the works, how many miles does it have? A fraction of that. So, you know, to really make a dent in the automobility of the region, it will require, you know, the kind of vision and technology, political and financial capital to massively increase the ubiquity of public transit options. And whether that comes in terms of, you know, autonomous vehicles on city streets that are, you know, like little trains that take people around that actually work, or whether it's dedicated rights of way, I don't know that we know that yet. And I think all the hoopla around autonomous vehicles is, you know, made, it didn't actually happen quite like that yet, at least yet. And so, you know, we don't want to jump on that bandwagon too fast. But I think over the longer term, there will be enough technological advances maybe not for people driving autonomous vehicles themselves, but autonomous transit systems that are small scale, ubiquitous, and, you know, run rapid, you know, run frequently so that it just becomes easy in the way life is lived. In the longer term, I'm hopeful that that can happen. And some of that freeway capacity can be rededicated to other uses. So Jennifer, from your, you grew up in Northern California, studied anthropology, ge- geography, at some point decided to pursue a PhD in urban planning. And so I'm interested to know, like, what led you to this calling, this line of work originally? And, and has it played out the way that you thought it might have? Well, I, you know, I, in my geography degree, I ended up doing a thesis on, on health service delivery the geography of health service delivery, which got me into planning and planning analysis. And then when I was deciding whether to do my PhD in geography or in planning, I was able to work with someone who was a geographer and a planner, but get a PhD in planning, which is, so I've always been this kind of hybrid, had this hybrid character of being both social science and geography and city planning. But I also come from a family and a household that was involved in local politics and activism and progressive causes. And so I always wanted to do something useful in terms of creating change with the education that I was fortunate enough to acquire. And, you know, it's not clear that academia is always the best place to do that. You know, it's, you have a lot of other responsibilities besides being an activist and, or a public intellectual. But I think what I've tried to do is to have both of those roles and to use the expertise I had to to contribute to public discussion about some of the big problems facing Southern California. Your work has taken you across an astonishing array of of topics, uh, beginning with homelessness and the role of public policy, public health, uh, conditions with respect to the role of uh, landscape or environment, uh, sustainability and resilience planning, to more recent topics, including the relationship between humans and non-human species in the city. Is there, are there through lines in that set of commitments? You, obviously, your intellectual formation and geography and, and planning are quite clear. But over the course of your career, I'm struck by the, the extraordinary diversity of topics that you've both read into and produced substantive scholarship in support of. I think that there, there's a through line. There's a through line, and then there's also kind of idiosyncratic 
quirks, right? The through line is probably that a lot of the work that I've done is in one way or another linked to vulnerable populations and justice for those populations, whether it's homeless people, whether it's people who face health uh, health risks because of the of the urban environment, whether it's you know precariously housed people, whether it's communities that are disproportionately exposed to you know environmental toxics or whatever, and all the way through the non-human world, which is a lot of it is uh, it's disappearing. It's not just marginalized. So that's I think that's a that's a kind of through line, if you will. The other thing is uh, you know more what I said more quirky, and that is or just a matter of, you know, patience and tolerance for, for problems. You know, after working on homelessness for, you know, 20 years and finding it so hard to change practice, part of me said, I want a new intractable problem to work on. So let's work on animals. Or, yeah, that's, that'll, that'll be easy. You'll knock that one out. Yeah, right. Knock that one out. So it's like trading totally intractable, one totally intractable problem with another intractable problem. But seriously, you know, I think that a lot of folks that are scholars and activists and so on, you know, there's only so much you think you can do. And then you want to think about, well, you know, where else could, might I make a difference or, you know, open the door for other people to think about something differently. So I think that's partly what happened. I mean, some of the, if you look at the work you know, the homelessness, precarious housing, the nonprofit sector, uh, and devolution and the welfare state, all of that is kind of of a piece, right? And then, you know, the work on animals started in the 90s and kind of continued all the way, has continued all the way through. Largely for institutional reasons, I got involved in the sustainability base and was able to, again, pick on environmental justice-related issues, and multi-scale issues around sustainability and vulnerability that, you know, that also were kind of of a piece. So I think that what is actually a pretty long career, I think this year is year 42 in the academy. I hate to think about it, but it's true. Uh, still, still a part of the solution, not yet a part of the problem. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think maybe my colleagues would have something different to say about that. But, you know, the point is, you know, I, it, I think it's healthy to shift around and to get different perspectives and work on different problems. Keep, keep yourself a bit fresh. And, and so that's kind of what I've tried to do. You know, one of the, the rewarding things that I think I see happening is actually around the whole question of, of animals and the more than human city, if you will. And, you know, in planning and geography in the 1990s, nobody talked about any of that, right? It was like, it's just not a conversation at all. And so the early interventions that I did with my colleague, Jody Emmel and others, you know, it just kind of hit at the right time. And all these young scholars, in geography, especially in geography, got interested, and now it's established subfield. And that is really great because, you know, no one person can do all this work. You need others to get interested and, and activated and excited by the topic. And, um, and that, really, that really happened. And, and that's something that it's intellectual activism, if you will, but also with the, the promise that some of those folks who are also activists will make change in the world themselves. You were involved, uh, developed a really consequential piece of work looking at Southern California and its food ecosystem, uh, ur the Urban Hoofprint Project. Do I have that right? The idea was 
you know, if we want to think about carbon emissions and doing something about climate change, we have to look at food supply. And uh, I think that if you look at all the IPCC reports and other scientific work on the sources of carbon emissions, you don't have to look very far before you get to animal agriculture as being a huge contributor. So the idea was behind the urban footprint work was to think about how cities are sourced in terms of food and how much of a contribution the urban diet makes in terms of urban carbon um, emission um, profiles and what could be done about it. Because food is a very complicated topic, as I'm sure everybody realizes. We have psychological links to food, cultural links to food, of course, economic issues around food, and people don't change their food ways just overnight, right? It's very, it's a very sticky kind of issue. And so part of, part of that work was trying to surface this issue of food. Now, I think, you know, there's been subsequent work, including by one of my colleagues that I worked on that with, Josh Newell from the University of Michigan, think, to look at actual urban metabolism models, food, and also look at food commodity chain, food commodity chains, and the spatialized, their spatialized nature, and the kind of justice issues, and EJ, and economic justice issues associated with food that ends up in the city, but actually is processed and raised in far-flung places under often horrible conditions. And nothing could be more obvious than this, you know, right now with COVID and the meatpacking plants, what dreadful conditions people work under. So I think that, you know, now the idea of urban metabolism and food and the food contribution to greenhouse gases now people know, and the IPCC and lots of other scientific bodies have said, you know, we're not going to get there unless we change our diet. That's pretty revolutionary, actually. And is it going to make everybody stop eating meat? No. With the rising middle class in the developing world, the meat consumption in those places is going up. But I do think that the realization that the climate's health and future depend on rethinking how we feed ourselves. It's a reckoning that is coming. It's almost here. And it also has some potential for huge side benefits in terms of pollution. I mean, animal agriculture is hugely polluting and also animal welfare and human health. As your work goes forward, I know that you're increasingly focused on questions of environmental justice and access to parks and recreation and open space and environmental health questions more, more broadly. Could you say something about that work and where you see your work going over the course of the next several years? I started working on parks and park equity quite a long time ago and then was able to, you know, do some work that I think affected people's thinking in Southern California because some of the work was on equity was actually used by city council people to argue for why their, their council districts needed more park space, for example, but also allowed me to hook up with a very esteemed group at USC, the health campus, epidemiologists and the public health services folks to look at some of these questions um, from a public health perspective. And so that was also, you know, also very interesting, very big group work, lots of, um, lots of meetings. But, you know, it also led to some interesting follow-on projects looking at, for example, a self-proclaimed smart city and uh, or a new urbanist development, whether it really made good on the kind of health 
and physical activity and health claims that it kind of was trying to sell itself on. Um, so there were many, um, many offshoots of that, of that work. I think that, you know, the frontier right now in that kind of work is really around green gentrification. And how do we think about making improvements to neighborhoods, especially low-income communities and communities of color? How do we think about making improvements in ways that don't essentially just price people out of the market and displace them into yet another not very nice, not very livable community. And I think that, you know, we, we face huge challenges in this regard. There, there are, you know, there's a couple of ways in which green gentrification happens. One is you build high, a high line and the whole neighborhood changes. And there's, you know, Zaha, you can buy a Zaha Hadid penthouse now on the high line for $40 million. So there's that model, which I think needs a lot of interrogation and breaks put on it. Because it's obvious, I mean, that's not such an obvious example, but it's not isolated. But the more, the slower and in some ways more insidious way that this happens is that there's a couple of ways, I think. One is, you know, you have general housing price and rent inflation that goes along with a somewhat changing population and then more demands for upgrades, better parks, better open space, better street design. And then, you know, other people follow on and the neighborhood suddenly has changed and the original folks can't live there anymore. You also have the sustainability discourse and sustainability planning, which is trying to help communities deal with stormwater and other aspects of sustainability and may or may not be very sensitive to what local communities actually feel they need. So, you know, if you want to build more park space, because it's going to be great in terms of water quality, stormwater infiltration, that's great. But maybe what the community feels it needs because they feel food insecure is much more community garden space, or they have a toxic dump that's in their community they, they want to have cleaned up. So I don't think that, as usual, we're always very good at listening to local communities. And I don't want to reify local communities as, you know, the all-knowing and always having the right answers. But I think that you can have well-meaning sustainability planners and advocacy groups kind of get, go, have their ideas go a little bit sideways when they get into a community that they might not understand or really appreciate the problems that they have. And the solutions that may ensue could generate more uh, gentrification pressure. So I think that the crux of this problem is not the desire to make communities better by providing, you know, a better landscape and green infrastructure and parks and open space. It really boils down to who has access to housing and what is housing. And it gets, again, it gets back to this question of commoditization of housing and what we can do to protect people who live in neighborhoods that are, are under pressure and changing. I don't know how you feel about this, Charles, but cities change. I mean, they're going to change. You can't freeze them in one spot. So neighborhoods are going to change, infrastructure, everything's going to change over the long term. But the speed at which things change matters. And the alternatives that people have or don't have also matter. And so the question is, to me at least, 
how can you slow change down when it's likely to be detrimental to people or further marginalize them or place them at some kind of risk? And also, how do you maybe rethink housing so that it isn't seen as only or treated as only a commodity, but also as something that is so fundamental to everybody's health and well-being that we have to, we have to treat it in a different way? And I don't think planners have developed a lot of really great tools to do this. And if we have some tools, we haven't been able to generate the finances and the policy changes necessary to enact them. Dr. Jennifer Walsh, thank you so very much. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.